There it is. There we go. All right. Here we go. Let's see what we end up with here. You're not going to say it. Somebody should. Soft, gentle version. Let's talk about two times. Let's talk about the non time 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 version. Yeah. Questions nobody could. Like, where are the bone dogs in? Are they in harmony? Oh, hey, everybody. Welcome. I was waiting to see if you oh, would just jump in after just I be said. Like, hey, everybody. Yeah. Just like, just barrel forward. Yeah. If, then you would just go, hey, Ian's here. Hey. That's Ian. Yeah. Hey. For episode, this is like 496, Ooh. I think. Yeah. Getting getting near uh, the legendary 500 where uh, there's going to be a crockpot destruction. Yes. Yeah. And possibly something else, but, yeah. or maybe not. It could be special or it could be very not special. What if episode 500 was just like four seconds long and it was just the sound of the crockpot breaking, like no theme music, nothing. It's just the sound of the crockpot breaking and then people think like, did I did I download this episode right? Like, did something happen? Then just make it sound like weird uh, audio technical failure or something. It's just like, yeah, it's just like Static. sort of white noise after that. <laughs> well, I do have a minor update. Ooh. So I don't know if you know much about the Genoa Wonder Tower. I, I think that was in a previous episode. It was. Yeah. I heard back from somebody mm-hmm. with them who said, I think, and I think I said this on the previous episode that they were intrigued by the idea of me going there and dropping the crock pot from the tower. <laughs> um, and uh, I got another email from them that was like, we have a board meeting coming up. So I'll bring this up to the board and we'll see what they say. And they also were like, so when I when I asked about this, because I was like, okay, somebody bought this tower. But it's not generally open to the public. It's just mm-hmm. once in a while. Right. Um, and it's like a Colorado endangered places thing. So I think they're trying to like keep roadside America alive. Deerfield, which is like the... Uh, uh, it was like a black settlement. Yeah. Close to here, which is like a ghost town. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that. So it's owned by somebody and it's got a board, but it doesn't seem like it's a super official board. You know, it's not like a, uh, it's not me trying to get to drop it off of a tower that AT&T owns. It's, they have a board in the way that there's probably some vague, Nonprofit entity around this tower. Yeah. That has to probably do, like, it's the people who have to deal with all of the issues of like plumbing or road access or like promotion. Yeah. Like, what do, like, to eventually maybe they want to grow a nonprofit into something, but you have like a board to kind of manage it. And I'm guessing, like, this board, this is not like their full time job and probably not even their only type of board job. Like, probably not. And given that this is a tower that is a sort of historic monument, but occasionally open but not frequently open exactly um, so the board doesn't have a lot to do exactly so it it's very up in the air because i'm like i think one of two things is going to happen either this board is going to be like 
yeah, fine, I don't give a shit. Right. Or is going to be like, are you fucking crazy? This is like a mockery of whatever. The other thing, though, is that I did offer to make a donation. And so in the last email, the guy was like, I'm not really sure what, what you were thinking donation-wise. And I was like, honestly, I have no idea because I've never tried to donate to go to a sort of closed giant shack in the middle of nowhere to drop a crock pot from the roof. Like, what is it? I have no concept of what's appropriate. And it's like, well, look, obviously I'm not, I don't have $100,000 for you. Right. I don't have $5,000 for you. Yes. Like, if you said 5000 would be about right, I'd be like, okay, well, thanks for your consideration. Well, in that previous episode, you had talked about if you had $100,000, you would be doing some type of weird party for one. Yeah, or like I could drop it from a helicopter into the Grand Canyon. You could rent out Monfort Concert Hall and just like tell nobody that they're allowed to come in. Just have my my show. Yeah. That would be pretty funny. You could probably swing that for $100,000. Oh, you could probably swing show. that for like $10,000. Just text like 10 people. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. How much do you think it costs? Do you think it says on here? Or do you think when you go online to Monfort Concert Hall, it's like inquiries, call this number? I'm guessing it's inquiries, call this number. But I, I kind of think that like, if you don't have something going on currently and they're not building a set, like if you said, look, all I want to do is like plant a chair on there and nobody can be in the, in the theater. Um, they probably would let you do it if there's like already a set under construction. Now we're talking about, sorry, the UNC foundation hall. Yeah. That's what we're talking about, right? I think so. Yeah. The one on eighth Avenue. That's basically a, a rat nest. No, point. I was thinking about the thing, like the Hensel Phelps Theater, I think it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. You were thinking about an actual theater. Yeah. I'm thinking about this shithole. There's this foundation hall. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if you can rent it anymore. You used to be able to. I mean, that's one where they probably be like, do you, we're not renting it to you because we, we think that it, it belongs to the rats now. <laughs> that would be disrespectful of us to rent this to anyone. The rats are the tenants. It would be funny to do a show and like have the 500th show be highly scripted and have lots of like, I'm taking applause breaks and stuff, except then no one's there. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear the skittering of, of, of uh, rats and cockroaches. Well, Foursquare is extremely unhelpful. They're like, it's likely open? <laughs> I, what does likely open mean? Like, the, it's, you know, you could, that's, that, that is not information. Yeah, I'm not sure how I figure out where to rent this. Foundation Hall Rental? I don't even know if they own that anymore. Facility Rental? Oh, now we're in North Carolina. Come on and raise up. Take Damn your it. shirt off. Twist it. <laughs> See, like, you could do the helpful snowman thing from the same venue in North Carolina. See, that would be a very helpful snowman thing of, like, you rented a UNC hall, but it turned out to be in North Carolina... So then you had to make like a road trip out to North Carolina. So you have like 497, 498, and 499. Are you driving out to North Carolina with a crock pot? 500 yeah. is you drop the crock pot. And then like 501, 502, 503, 504. Basically like the next 20 episodes are you complaining about the drive back? Or it could be, okay, I booked this haul. Uh -huh. uh, I did not realize it's in North Carolina. It's tomorrow. Right. So what I've done is contacted the venue, 
and uh, somebody's going to set up a computer with me on Skype at the front of the room, just on the floor on the stage. Right. And there's not going to be anyone there anyway, <laughs> but I demand that this happens. And then I'll release the audio slash video, which will be of a quality of just a computer sitting on a stage somewhere. <laughs> You'll oh you you'll have like a microphone recording the speaker of the computer and on the computer when you're like skyping or zooming in, you're dropping the crock pot. Yeah, right. Well, it looks like you can't rent it anymore. Oh, or at least not that one. Or maybe you have to go deeper in because they're like, well, uh, you know, we we want you to know. I imagine some of those places like UNC, they kind of do the uh, check of how much money they think you have and that's how much they want you to pay. Yep, this was what it looks like because they're like, um, organization. I'll just put podcast. <laughs> Type. Uh, nonprofit, for-profit, individual, I guess I'll put. Oh, God, okay. I'm not doing all this. It doesn't appear that you can r rent that hall anymore. Mm. But it is possible that you can rent that hall, but they don't want to... There, Someone is being smart and is like, you know, we're not going to put that on like our front page. We're going to... You have to fill out a couple of parts of a form so that way the people who are... The people with pranks or the, the people who are stoned at UNC are not like, let's start the call. That'll be fun. Yeah. And then once you fill it out, they're like, we notice you may be interested in our broke-ass fools venues. Right. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'm very interested in that. Thank you. There's that. We, you might be interested in renting that tunnel that goes under the street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I rented, like, the theater at the, you know, the UCCC or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, and then I sold no tickets. I mean, okay. I think you'd get some people there because they just buy season tickets. And maybe, sure. I don't know if this would qualify, but then it'd be like a bunch of weird grandpas and stuff who are just like, I just go to everything that's at everything. That would be so great because they're coming in like absolutely in the middle of a 500 episode celebration where all you're doing is explaining like why you're dropping this crock pot. Yeah. And then you drop the crock pot and it ends. I can remember, yeah, they're just like, what the fuck is going on? I went to, okay, I distinctly remember a couple shows I was at at the UCCC. One was George Carlin, mm -hmm. and uh, every time, both times I can remember going there, it was like probably 60 to 70% just a bunch of old people who I later found out that's what they do. They get a season ticket, and they just go to everything because they're just like, fuck it. And they don't even really pay attention to what it is. They're just like, we're going. So a bunch of people walked out on that. The other one I went to was like a traveling cat circus, mm. which also a bunch of people left. But I was like, why are why is everybody here like so old? And then that's why. Is that if you got the season ticket, you can kind of, you're not going to power through it. You're going to be like, I am going to see if I like this. And if I don't, I'm gone. But it would be funny to just have an enormous venue with no one in it. Yes. Like, that, would be, that does appeal to me. <laughs> oh, would you rather have the UCCC theater or, which we can't rent right now, and maybe you could if you put off episode 500 for a little bit, but the stampede venue. Yeah, that would be funny. Mm -hmm. The rodeo stampede thing. And they're like, what do you, what do you need as far as, 
See, okay, I got to imagine, though, that like with the Stampede, for example, you have to pay an amount that justifies like how how much staff are they going to need. Right. And I, I wonder how that negotiation goes when I'm like, listen, one guy could do it. <laughs> I need someone to open the doors, turn on the power. Yeah. Uh, close the, turn off the power and close the doors. Yeah. That's it. And like, I may pee once in a bathroom and I will clean up after myself if you don't right. want to hire a janitor. <laughs> I'll promise to, I'll bring my own garbage can. Like, could you itemize that on the bill for me? Yeah, I feel like that would be an extremely unpopular pitch at the same time if I was like, listen, how about I'll pay you 500 bucks for that? That's 500 bucks you wouldn't have. Right. Like, or ask... Ask whatever guy it is that's going to have to open it for me if he wants to make 500 bucks. Mm, like, he just, you get the person, like, you, instead of paying the venue, you just pay the people who, like, open and shut it. Yeah. You pay, like, them, you pay the security guard to, like, look the other, basically, you're paying people to do their normal job slash look the other way. Yeah, and be slightly annoyed by someone talking over the loudspeaker. Right. With, like, a bunch of reverb and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then it would just be so funny to hear me doing this in that style and then nobody reacting or laughing. That would be enjoyable. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, four episodes from now. Four episodes from now. It's entirely possible that's what's going to end up happening. I think this happened with three or four hundred, which is what I ended up doing was like uh, going to like 399 then mm-hmm. 401, then 402, then 403, and eventually came back to 400. You looped back to 400 because, like, you had a plan for 400 and then yeah. it didn't quite work out. Yeah, or I did, like, a 299.1 <laughs> or some shit like that. I think there was something where you were building up and you were doing, like, yeah, you were building up and, like, doing a power hour for, like, was that 300? Or maybe, who knows? Like, there was one of those 100 ones that was, like, broken up into multiple episodes. So it was really, like, 200 part one. It must have been 200. I think 200, maybe maybe it was 100 was I just had a bunch of people come. Right. And it was like a 10 hour long show. Mm-hmm. And then 200 was probably the power hour thing. 300 was the only released on like- Blood vinyl. Yeah, on three copies of a vinyl record, mm-hmm. which I think you have one of. I have one. As the winner, I mm-hmm. have one of, because it's mine. And Poonmaster Flex has one because she designed the art. Mm. And so I was like, well, that's fair. But uh, I don't even remember what 400 was. Was it anything special? I don't remember that <laughs> off the top of my head either. Should I look? I'm, I must have done something, right? But maybe I was just like, same fucking show. Mm-hmm. There's nothing happening. It's fine. Let's like see. somehow 400 was like the anniversary where you're like, eh. I don't really want it. Like, we should acknowledge it, but at the same time, we're not going to make a big screaming deal out of it. Well, it was multiple parts. Oh, okay. I did a bunch of, I did have a bunch of guests in phone-ins as well. Mm. Yep, okay. We had Poonmaster. We had Matt. We, I think then I called a bunch of people. Then we just have something called the final stretch, and I see an image with a bunch of beers in the background. <laughs> That sounds about right. Okay. Well, that's probably why I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's going to be special, but it may be special in being not that special. 
there's going to be a crockpot destruction, which I think has been built up so much that maybe you have to think about a spectacular way to destroy the crockpot. Yeah. And um, then what if instead of going to a tower, you got enough fireworks and launched it into the sky? That would be amazing. I don't have confidence in my ability. The problem is venue. Mm-hmm. Where do you do that? And then the other problem, like... One problem is getting enough like lift to lift a crockpot. Well, and the other thing is I'm like, it's fine line between, okay, like, uh, when does a crockpot become a pipe bomb? <laughs> sure. And like, when does this become super dangerous? Mm-hmm. Um, I was for a while, I think I've abandoned this idea because I don't think it would work. Right. I was trying to get liquid nitrogen <laughs> mm. so I could shatter it demolition man style. Mm-hmm. But now I think it's possible that ceramic would not really shatter like liquid nitrogen style because the reason I guess things shatter when they're in liquid nitrogen is because the water content in them is frozen. Yes. So like a human or a flower will shatter mm-hmm. because it has high water content. And I'm like, I don't think Crock-Pot has very high water content. I think that's kind of the way it's designed is to not have a lot of water in it. Yeah, that's the thing. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe if I soaked it, it would be porous and then it would, I don't know. But anyway, it turns out it's also kind of difficult. There's no law against anyone having an amount of liquid nitrogen. Um, But you have to buy like a container for it Mm -hmm. and then you have to buy the stuff and the the real problem is that most places that sell liquid nitrogen aren't really set up for selling it for nonsense. Right. They're like, you know, actual businesses that need it for, I don't know why the fuck you need liquid nitrogen. People need it for lab stuff. Yeah, science shit. Mm-hmm. So they want to sell you, you know, like a tanker truck worth of it. Um, they're not really interested in selling me like a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> they they they're sort of like, you can't buy a small amount. It's You have to buy a massive, massive quantity. You have to buy the Sam's Club version. Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they want they want a client for life. They want a client where they're going to be refilling their liquid nitrogen for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, this is a one-time situation and you'll never hear from me again. I need a, I need a gallon of it. I brought this, uh, this, wait, wait, let me dump this out. Okay, I brought this half, this milk jug. Just fill her up. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I guess this would be a convenient time to be friends with like a high school science teacher because mm-hmm. they always seem to have like access to that somehow. A chemist. Yeah, somebody yeah. like that. But, and then the other thing is like the only places I can get it are seem to be about an hour away. Mm-hmm. And like, again, they'll deliver it, but not for like the amount that I'm getting. <laughs> and so... I'm like, can you just put like a liquid nitrogen thing in your Toyota Corolla and then like just drive, like just put it in the trunk? Yeah. And is it fine? Like, is it still cold? How does that work? That doesn't seem like it works. Like, if you just put it in a, like in a thermos. Yeah. How does, how, and how much do I need? Mm -hmm. I'm like, cause ideally I would like, I guess, submerge a crock pot in liquid nitrogen. And then I'm like, well, how do you get it back out? There's lots of logistics. And then also, ultimately, I'm like, okay, so you get liquid nitrogen, you submerge a crock pot in it, you smash it with a sledgehammer. Where are you doing this? In the driveway? Like, that doesn't seem like a wise decision. Garage, obviously. Yeah, in the garage. Like, 
With your house right above it. Yeah. What could go wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, on a a semi-porous surface being the garage floor. It really makes you think that you could go in the opposite Terminator 2 direction if only there's a foundry nearby. Yeah. Wouldn't it be awesome to throw it into like a big vat of molten metal? That would be fucking great. I would like that. Um, I don't think there are very many steel foundries nearby that you could just throw stuff into. Probably not. Um, That's a good eccentric millionaire idea, though. Mm -hmm. Is like, you basically open up a thing and it's just a tub of liquid metal. And it's like, hey, if you want to throw some shit into... You just went through a bad breakup. You want to get rid of the pictures or whatever? Throw it in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to throw a phone in here? No questions asked. I'm going to assume that you did it for legitimate reasons. You just didn't want people to know what was on your phone. You have uh, Thursday night rug disposal day. Like, you got this rug. It's rolled up. What's inside? I don't know, but you can dispose of it. Hey, man, people bring in a rolled up rug. How am I to know whether that's more rug or a guy? Right. (laughs) Yeah, all those things. What am I, the rug police? Well, and just like, it seems like you could do that like at a carnival. Mm -hmm. Like, if you had a big tub of liquid metal and it's like, Throw whatever you want in there. It's like the idea I had for the uh, food booth at a carnival, Mm -hmm. which is like uh, deep fried, whatever. BYO food, we'll deep fry it. It will bring it, you know, you bring it to us and we'll deep fry. I mean, the hard part is that like most people would bring something like their regular Snickers bar. And it would just melt and like ruin the fryer almost immediately. Well, just coat it. Yeah. Every, you know, if they bring a bag of Cheetos, I'll be like, okay, well, I guess I can coat it in batter and fry it. We're good. Ooh, you could like make a Cheeto. Basically, it'd become a deep fried Cheetos ball. Yeah. It's like a Cheeto meteor that <laughs> came to earth from heaven. I feel like part of the deal is like whatever I, whatever you deep fry, someone has to take a bite of in front of you. Yeah. I would want to know. Um, would you allow people to like deep fry something that's not food? Like... Yes, but I would have a separate fryer for that. Mm. Um, probably nothing with a battery in it. But uh, other than that, I think I'd be like, whatever, man. And probably also the like, you have to sign a waiver if I'm going to deep fry a key. Sure. Like some drunk person like, deep fry my keys. <laughs> so you can't get a DUI. <laughs> so you can't get a DUI. <laughs> like, all right, but you have to sign the waiver. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, they're just like, I'm going to throw my wallet in there. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I think I would just have to get like a Nest Cam, mm-hmm. you know, with the sound on and just be like, I have footage of everyone consenting to whatever. Or like they have to push the button that actually dumps their thing in the deep fryer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that would be a really interesting small claims court thing of like, <laughs> he deep fried my wallet without my consent. Yeah, and I'm like, well... He's claiming I did it without his consent, but like I fried like a thousand things that day, none without consent. Right. All were consented. Mm-hmm. So that's all I could do for you. Consensual frying is important. It's the it ethical is. thing to do. It is. Speaking of ethical thing to do, uh-huh. I had thought for this episode, because you're getting near 500. I am. You know, and getting every now and close. then it's hard because this episode strays from its roots a little bit. Uh-huh. Or this, this show does, because... Uh-huh. This show has been on for a long time and has become kind of an auto, like an audio diary of Pete's life. Pretty much, yeah. But it started out with, I'm going to give advice. Yes. Over the air. The helpful part was more, <laughs> the helpful part of Helpful Snowman was more popular. And then 
it turned out that like a thousand people had the same idea, which is I'm going to use Yahoo Answers to find questions and answer them. Right. And then all of them did it better than I did. And they, but and all, many of those podcasts have also spiraled into other things. Yeah. Mostly because Yahoo Answers is gone. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, R.I.P. So I tried to find some questions that you could answer. Oh, great. But what's really difficult is that, like, Quora, you now have to have an account to really get to see. And I've forgotten. I I think I have a Quora password, but I was like, I don't really want to deal with... Not going to do a password recovery for this. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be like, I'm not going to do that. Because also, like, a lot of the Quora ones are like, do you think Donald Trump was a good president? It's not really advice anymore. It's like people trying to start an inane... It's like the someone's trying to start an inane conversation, but Facebook somehow just they want strangers. So this is what I wish we could do is just like I think on a previous episode I talked a little bit about truth social. Yes. And I was like, you know, my fantasy for the future is that we can just sort of pick a sacrificial social media platform mm-hmm. and that will be where political discussions are. Mm-hmm. And everywhere else is like bucket. Right. Like, that's not what this is for. I'm not saying you necessarily got to be banned the second you say something political, but like, it's just, you'll get no traction here. It's hard when you have something that's like not political. Like when I go on Reddit and like some subreddits, I like have no politics. Yeah. It makes sense when you say no politics and it's like a cat subreddit where it's like, is this not, is this a picture of a torty cat? Like, right. Great. When you have no politics, it's a way to clarify. Like this wasn't supposed to, it's not supposed to be. If you're, if your discussion has gotten political, that is a good sign it's off the rails. Right. There are times where I'm like, can you do no politics meaningly? Like, there's a meltdown recently on that subreddit, like with the TV show, the Amazon show, The Boys, uh-huh. where they had a no politics rule. Uh-huh. And like, the show has over the top, melodramatic politics in it. Sure. Um, and so it seems kind of hard to ban that entirely. Like, if it has some reflection or reference to a real world political event. Sure. Like that's politics, but like, I think, you know, the idea is no random partisan discussion. Hey man, I would just, on my, on my fantasy, no politics platform, Mm -hmm. even that would be like, save it for your fucking, uh, what do you call that shit that they go to the quorum or whatever? Quora. What's the, Mm -hmm. uh, no, the, the, before the primary, all the dorks meet up and talk about politicians and voting and shit. Oh, like a caucus or the caucus. Mm-hmm. Save it for the caucus, yeah, dorks. Um, but I decided instead of going for Quora, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of going for Yahoo Answers, which was great because it was like the random. It was what the actual people wanted to know. Yes, it was full of craziness. Right. Yeah. I wanted to go maybe the highbrow version. Mm. The people who have sophisticated things. And you're going to follow in the great in the footsteps of one of your favorites, uh-huh. Chuck Klosterman, uh-huh. who was the ethicist at one point. Uh-huh. Someone else took over, and I think you had voiced in an episode or maybe just talking with him that you didn't like his approach as much. The new one. The new one. Which I think the new one, the new one approaches it more like the ethicist more as an advice column. Yes. You well, know, yeah, I think what I liked about Chuck Klosterman's version is I think he, he did make people angry sometimes because I think he was committed to not telling people what they wanted to hear. Right. 
which is, I think, why a lot of people write into an advice column is basically to say, like, tell me I'm right and this person's wrong. <laughs> it's part of where the internet has replaced a lot of good advice columns with, am I the asshole? Yeah. Which is always amazing because you get the people who are like, you have so little self-awareness of what you're doing. But it's crowdsourcing that in a way that advice columns, I guess it's what Yahoo Answers was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I guess with Chuck Klosterman's one too, I felt like he purposely picked questions that were really were ethical questions. Mm-hmm. They weren't, you know, it was like, I don't know. Some I remember one in particular was sort of like uh, somebody had like a deep rock machine at work and people would like take a huge thing of water and fill it up and like take it home at the end of the day. And, you know, someone was like, is that ethical? So then it got into like, well, what if your your office offered like free cereal for breakfast, but people were taking it home? You know what I mean? Right. Things like that where you're like, this is a good ethical question. It's not like a, a important ethical question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just sort of an interesting one. It's a minor quibble. Yeah. Um, well, these are sort of like probably much closer to advice types of questions. Okay. And the thing that's different about the ethicist versus the Quora or the other version is that they're almost always really long okay, as things to ask or comparatively long where like Yahoo Answers was always good because things would be like three or four sentences. Right. It would just be like, uh, why is my vagina at a 45 degree angle? Right. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> and then you'd read it and be like, actually, I'm a little more confused now that I've read the question. That sometimes you want, like Yahoo Answers gave you the I want more context for this. Yeah. Um, But we'll start with, I got three of them here. Okay. And so what you're going to do is you can give some ethical guidance or advice. All right. Be helpful in the helpful snowman. We're going back to roots. Okay. All right. So first one, I am a product of an extramarital affair. Okay. My non-biological... Interesting way to refer to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) My non-biological father has always recognized me as his own child, and I regard him as my father. But I want to know who my biological father is. Out of curiosity and to find out about any family predispositions to disease, etc. And my mother has never told me. I'd like to do a DNA test, but I am concerned about the disruption I might cause to my biological father's family, assuming they do not know about this extramarital affair. What to do? Hmm, okay. Well, I I think it's sort of reasonable to want to do it for, like, you know, to find out if you're, like, predisposed to disease and stuff, I guess. Sure. Um, But that seems like kind of a fake reason, in my opinion. I think there's a bit of, like, because sometimes you can get various types of genetic testing to see if you have a predisposition to something. Right that is more likely to be more useful to you than necessarily a family history in some cases. Exactly. So, like, you could take 23andMe and find out if you're likely to have Huntington's. Right. Or some shit like, you know, most of those easily predictable by genetics type diseases. Mm-hmm. So, I question that that motive. I think it's probably got more to do with, like, I just want to know who my dad is. Right. And. I wonder if a DNA test is... Well, like, with a DNA test... Like, I'll take a DNA test. It's not like... 
if you did a 23 in me, it's not going to tell you who your real dad is. No, right. You know, it's going to, because you'd have, like, it seems kind of like this person would have to, in order to find out who their bio dad is, they would have to get somebody who they kind of suspect is the bio dad. Right. To all, like, really what this person needs is not like a ancestry or a 23 in me. They need like Maury Povich. I was thinking the same exact thing because I was like, Maybe, are we talking about a situation here where there are, like, multiple possible biological dads? Right. Because I'm like, well, couldn't your mom just tell you who it was, and then you would know who it was? I mean, does I, I don't know if the biological father knows he's the biological father of a child mm-hmm. is a whole other question. I mean, it sounds like, if I'm being honest, maybe this guy could work on his relationship with his mom a little <laughs> Because there seems to be a lot of blanks here that mom could pretty easily fill in. Um, And, uh, I mean, I kind of get, like, I don't want to disrupt if dad has a family or whatever. But at this point, if this person's an adult and, like, whatever, I don't know. I think part of it might be, like, if um, bio dad, like, had a separate family. Bio dad was also married at the same time. Yeah. And, like... Somehow, like, bio mom, like, obviously, it was discovered because she was pregnant. Yeah. And they all, you know, everybody knows, like, non-bio dad is not not the bio dad. Um, yeah. With the biological father, like, maybe he got away with it? Like, maybe he just kind of, like, didn't tell anybody? Well, it's, it's kind of one of two, one of three scenarios. Uh biological dad got away with it and never told anyone. Right. Uh, biological dad doesn't know mm-hmm. that he impregnated this woman because mm-hmm. he may have had an affair but maybe doesn't know that that was the result. Right. Uh, or part three is he is aware that there's a kid and maybe uh, it wouldn't really affect his current life anyway because maybe he's not in a relationship Maybe he's in a relationship that he was in at that time and they dealt with it at that time. Right. Or maybe, uh, you know, whatever. There there are multiple scenarios. So I don't think that's the relevant thing either. Here's what I think is the most relevant thing Mm -hmm. and the advice. Um, Most people aren't that great. Sure. And so I think if you go in to finding your dad expecting him to be anything other than like a C plus mm-hmm. average guy, you're going to be real disappointed. And, um, I, I just don't get it. You know, I knew this kid when I was in high school who was born in Korea mm-hmm. and adopted by American parents and mm-hmm. they raised him and he would always be like, someday I'm going to find my real parents. And I just always wondered like, is that going to be disappointing? You know what I mean? I I would be disappointed. I know I would be because right. when you found your real parents, I'm like, okay, if your parents gave you up for adoption, best case scenario, they had you when they were like 17 and were smart enough to recognize that they were not prepared to raise a child. Right. And so then they've since gone on to be normal human beings. And uh, so they're fine. Best case. They're going to be like the people that you encounter are not the people who gave birth to you, right? Like who, you know, they are not those people anymore. Yeah. Now that's the best possibility. 
There's also the possibility of like, maybe you find your biological dad and he's a complete fuck up. Right. Maybe you find your biological dad and he ends up being like a huge burden on your life. Like maybe he's asking you for money because he's like a meth addict. That's the other thing is like, maybe he's not going to be so, not, he's not going to be the C plus. He could be the, that's like, that, that could be a decent outcome. That's what I'm saying is C plus is the good outcome. Right. That's the best you should hope for. I mean, the chances that your dad is like LeBron James are not good. You know, the, the chances that your dad are someone awesome and then you're like, and this changes, or the chances that your dad is like a good guy and then once he finds out that you're his son is like, oh, let's have a relationship. Mm-hmm. That seems low to me. It's kind of like there's a low chance of you're going to find a guy who's a decent guy who wants to have a relationship with you and that finding him is not going to mess up his life. Yeah, I mean, what this person should do is take an informal poll of like 10 different friends. Right. And be like, what do you think your dad? Like, just as a guy. Mm -hmm. Is your dad like amazing? Is he whatever? And I'm like, I don't know. I think seven out of 10 are going to be like, eh, he kind of sucks. Or, you know, and three out of 10, two of them will be like, my dad's my best friend of all time and they're fucking weirdos. And then one will be like, he's good. He's fine. It's, I'm guessing there's going to be like a median average of people will be like, I love my dad, but I don't know that I would like seek him out. Yeah. Like. Yeah. So I would, <laughs> I would be inclined to let the sleeping dogs lie or uh, go like the private detective route. Mm. Find out about him before you meet him. Yes. And if you wanted to go extra far. You know what you could do is you could meet him in a context where he doesn't know he's meeting his son. Right. So, like, if he haunts a bar somewhere, uh, you know, which is in all likelihood probable considering what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, your dad's some shitty barfly. Mm-hmm. Just meet him there and just see what he's like. Don't You don't need to reveal that you're his son right away. And it's like, well, if he hits you up for 20 bucks the first time you meet him and he's a total stranger, then, then you then can you get know. away. Yeah. I mean, it also seems there's the relationship with mom where I kind of understand where maybe she doesn't want to talk about like what is probably not not her greatest moment in a way. Um, but at the same time, like maybe she doesn't want to talk about it because like I think you said before, maybe she's not quite sure. Well, and the other thing is, yeah, I think as far as mom not telling him who dad is or something... Right. I feel like it's like, eh, I think you kind of owe it. He knows he's the product of an affair. Right. Like, if you were going to do it the secret way, do it the, do it all the way. Just tell him that his dad is his dad. And I think that in many, many cases, this person with the non-biological bio, dad who recognizes him as his own child, mm-hmm. I think he may have kind of... I'm not going to say he hit the dad lottery, but he got a pretty good... Um, pretty good hand there and maybe he should sort of appreciate what he has instead of trying to like get a little more yeah um because i think trying to get a little more will just make things uh worse yeah i agree i think that uh yeah you know what you got one dad don't be greedy (laughs) yeah you got one pretty decent dad who are or at least a dad who's done um the the decent stuff and i am just messing up peter no you're fine it's not your fault um all right, so that's a 
that was a simple one, right? The ethical answer. And I think maybe the other part of it is like, if you are actually concerned about disease, like just do the, um, do various types of genetic testing. That's probably cheaper. Uh, maybe your health insurance will cover that if you have health insurance. Yeah, just do that. You don't need to, um, you don't need your dad's. Just go to like LabQuest or whatever it is and you don't have to really have like a doctor thing. Just be like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. It'll be cheaper than a private detective. Well, I know like, I know health history can sometimes be helpful, but it's like, eh. Um, it's sort of like, it's, yeah, with some diseases, it's like the, uh, what will you know that will change your life in a way that will prevent you from getting it? Right. Um, all right, second one. This is this is the long one because it's written by an academic, so <laughs> it had to be like freaking um, three pages. According to D Jacques Derrida, yeah, I'm a professor at a branch campus of a large state university system in a state that has passed and is planning to pass more laws dictating what and how we can teach in our classrooms. These laws are intentionally vague and allow almost any material related to several important topics to be called into question. This has emboldened a small but very vocal part of our student body to disrupt classrooms whenever issues of race, gender, religion, or sexuality are raised. I'm a tenured popular professor, and I'm not worried about that engaging with this material puts my job in danger. Even if I were, I don't think that would be an ethical reason not to teach it. I am, however, noticing that a new willingness on the part of that small minority of students to say blatantly racist or bigoted things is taking a toll on other students, particularly those whose identities are implicated in the discussion. In the past, I would simply have shut down inappropriate discussions, but I'm no longer legally allowed to do so, and the administration has made it clear that they would not support any professor who does so. My question, then, is whether it's ethical to continue to teach material I know will expose students to bigoted racist speech from their classmates, with whom they will be expected to maintain a collegial working relationship. In a nutshell, if teaching the poet and activist, activist Audre Lorde means forcing black, queer, and female students to endure racist, homophobic, misogynist comments from their classmates, it's still ethical to teach that particular poet. Uh, <laughs> okay, so... Okay, let me see if I can sum this up. So, like, the guy... Well, I, let's just say it's a guy. Sure. The guy is saying that uh, he's teaching classes... Mm -hmm. And they would do some material where before, where it has always resulted in some clashing over like racial or gender politics or something. In the past, mm -hmm. he had ability to shut that down, but in the present, he does not? Yes. I don't understand how that works. I think the idea is that some states have passed some really broad laws about like, under the guise of free speech, uh -huh. um, they've sort of said that they've tried to pass laws that certain people may have the right to say certain things, I guess. Mm -hmm. And regardless of whether that thing is disruptive or goes against a school code or something like that. Uh -huh. um, and I think the idea is that sometimes some, I think some states have passed a very, uh, I guess what I would describe as a very absolutist version of free speech mm -hmm. for within college classrooms specifically or like educational institutions. Yeah. I guess what I don't understand is what, what an example would be of something that a student was saying that was like, uh, well, okay. 
Let me start with this. Maybe if you're teaching something that seems to frequently result in students being abused right. <laughs> as a result of the teaching, maybe you either need to change the material or the method by which you're presenting it. Because I don't think it should be about, I can teach this material, and then it always results in someone like spouting some horrible racist something. And before, I could just basically tell them, Stop saying that. I, you know, I, I mean? think what it is is that some states have passed laws that are restrictive on what can be called broadly controversial topics in quotation marks. Uh-huh. And because those laws are really vague, mm-hmm. right, it is easy for if you're teaching a controversial topic, like say about race, uh-huh. student says something that they disagree or they're trying to engage with the material. Uh-huh. And if you shut them down, right, um, it's sort of the student who is shut down in some way can claim that their viewpoint is being discriminated against mm-hmm. and that the new laws allow them to uh, sort of impact the employment of the faculty member, of the teacher. Right. Um, and so I think what happens is that because those laws have shifted about like teaching rate, like topics around like race, gender, or that type of thing, um, because students know that they or believe that the law is kind of at their back, students who might have said something that's a little bit less obviously racist feel more emboldened to say the more obviously racist thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much to generate discussion, but like almost as like a combination of trolling and like provocation. Like I'm going to try to bait the professor into shutting me down then I'm going to actually get the professor in trouble for shutting me down. Does that make sense? Yes, I guess so. And so the professor is in the spot where he used to be able to shut that down. Uh The law doesn't allow him to shut that down or might get him in trouble if it does. Uh You know, like if he tries to. And so he has to sort of let it go. But in letting it go, uh, students are exposed to all kinds of like racist, sexist, homophobic stuff. Yeah. Um, Well. And so the professor's asking whether it's ethical to continue teaching um, some of this material anymore. Well, okay. I think as far as ethics go, that's one question. I mean, obviously, in the interest of practicality, you could just stop doing it, right? Yes. Like, because if you're like, look, this is just not a, problem that I can solve. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess it depends how burned out you are. Mm-hmm. Are you like professor year 27 or are you a professor in year like 10 minus? And I'm guessing this is a 10 minus type of person. It's, um, it's somebody who has tenure. So it's probably closer to like at least, you know, five years in, but probably. Well, it's someone who still seems to give some of a fuck. Right. So I, you know, I obviously can't be like, because someone who just didn't care would just be like, all right, well, I'm not teaching that anymore, I guess. Right. Or whatever. I think in, there was somewhere in the question where it seemed like the person was concerned about the students saying racist things and then their ability to like continue to work in a cohort with other students and stuff like that. I think so, yeah. Like, it's sort of the problem is that when the students who say bigoted things, Mm -hmm. um, 
part of it is that the students, like other students still have to like maintain a sort of collegial, like they're expected to maintain a collegial civil environment with the obvious bigot, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I'm of two minds about this. Right. Uh, one part of me is like, um, if you're teaching material that basically uh, students are supposed to absorb it and take away from it one thing. Right. So in other words, if you're teaching in a math class, that would be appropriate, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, well, I think, uh, you know, two plus two is going to equal four. Right. And like that, it's fine to be like, this is the only answer. Mm -hmm. We just have to go with it. We just have to agree. Even on a philosophical level, even if this is incorrect, we've all agreed that it's correct. It's it's a made up thing. So here we go. If you're teaching anatomy and physiology, like if you're teaching anatomy class, like you have to memorize a bunch of stuff. That's just what they're named. That's what it is. You and I have to agree uh, where a femur is. Right. <laughs> like, and it's not really a matter of how I feel about it. It's mm -hmm. just, it is. Um, then I think about like, an, oh, okay, a bunch of the English classes I took and you read like a bunch of critical theory and stuff like that. I think if you want, I don't know that it's productive to teach in that sort of thing if, you have the expectation that students will all walk away with the same thing. Sure. And feeling the same way about it and mm. feeling positive about it. And um, I guess, so that's one way I feel about it is like, well, I don't know if it's reasonable to, what's the point of doing it? Mm -hmm. If like, the point, if you, if you just want all the students to read the piece, read the article, and then come away with the same lesson, why bother? Like, you don't need to have a class then. They don't mm -hmm. need you as the professor to do that. You can just write them a summary and tell them how to feel about it. Right. Um, I guess the other part I'm sort of torn on is on one hand, I'm like, this is harsh and not good. And on the other hand, I'm sort of like, well everybody is going to leave college and then deal with a world where they are going to have a coworker who's like a bigot. Right. They're going to have like a boss who's an asshole. They're going to have to like learn to deal with these people. And so I guess it depends on your sort of philosophy of what college is for. Mm -hmm. If it's like to prepare you for life, then it is preparing you for life and it's not great, but it is pragmatic. I think in many ways, when I look at the, or in some, one way, when I look at the institutional failure, yeah, as weird as it seems, the institutional failure is failing the student with the bigoted expression in some very powerful ways. Mm -hmm. Because part of what a classroom can do is let people be wrong about things in a way that has fairly limited consequences. Right. Like, you get the wrong answer on a paper or on a test and like it kind of sucks and maybe you get an A minus instead of a A. Right. But ultimately it doesn't matter. Right. Where like the institution is ultimately, you know, not just the college, but like legal system and everything else has kind of built a shelter around the bigot, right? Or the bigoted stuff or embolden that bigoted behavior in a way that like 
you're correct in that the uh the rest of the world may have to face a bigot. Yeah. Um on the other hand, the bigot may have to face the rest of the world, and that bigot might find that the rest of the world is a lot harsher, like a lot meaner. And they might find, like, everyone else could be like, man, there's bigots everywhere. You just kind of got to either deal with them or not deal with them. Um, but, like, some workplaces are going to be a lot less tolerant of that bigot than that university is. And yes, that, they are. And that's where the bigot is going. And that's also where maybe that people will say, like, the um, the institution failed in a way that other, like, organizations or groups or communities don't fail. Right. Or, like, they say, yeah, we're going to push this person out. We're going to push this person away. Right. Um, and I think part of what maybe is the unfair expectation the professor has, but also the unfair expectation generally that comes up in a lot of these kind of weird campus cancel culture type conversations is like, if someone is a jerk, you don't have to be collegial to them. Like, you don't have an obligation to like, you don't like maybe be mean to them, but you don't have to have like a good colleagues relationship. You can be like, I'm just not going to hang out with you anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to spend any time with you. Like, right. I'm, we're going to go to the same class, and when you want to chat after class, I am not chatting with you. Yes. Right? Like the people may have to confront issues of bigotry, but I don't have to confront you as the bigot, if that makes sense. Like, I don't have to confront you personally. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think that I think I agree with you. I, I and what I think what I'm saying is like, um. I don't know. I I guess t what's hard about this particular question to me is I think I would need to know more, something more specific. Mm. Because I think it does depend on what what is the professor considering like an unacceptable level of uh, bigotry, for example. Because it's possible that what they would consider, you know, I'm picturing like, Oh, we're discussing Huckleberry Finn and people are just like very casually using the N-word right. in class. And then you can't tell people like, can we say N-word instead, you know, something? Right. Or like we can't discuss that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, in a reasonable way. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's what I'm picturing, but I'm not sure that that's what it is. So I I wonder what the material is that's eliciting this. And then I wonder... Because that would help me know whether it's like, yeah, the way people are reacting to this is totally unreasonable. Right. Or the material is like, well, what did you think was going to happen if you try and teach this material? I mean, I guess my overall advice would be sort of like, you know, when you look at like your career, whatever field you're in, it's like, Every every sort of field is a pendulum. Mm -hmm. And it's like on a long enough timeline, you will see, because like I'm coming up on almost 20 years at the library, and it's like you see the same things come around over and over. And it's like, it's a long cycle. It's like a 10-year cycle, but you see everything sort of refreshes and starts again. And then people start having this argument, and then they wonder why the old timers are like not interested in the argument. Right. And you're like, because we did this 10 years ago. <laughs> and you know, it, it kind of, it, it does tend to settle. So I guess, I guess my advice would basically be like, maybe the, maybe you just need to flip the question. Mm -hmm. So in other words is 
whether or not it's ethical to teach the material maybe isn't the question. Right. Maybe the question should be, well, look at the material. If you feel it's causing more harm to marginalized students than it is benefit to any other student, mm-hmm. then it's a waste of fucking time. It's part of like the idea of teaching people like with marginal, like from marginalized experiences or that type of material is to support them. But if it's not supporting them, and that might not be your fault as the teacher, it's sort of the a legislative failure or like a legislator be like a legislature acting like a bunch of dicks, right? Um, to make your job harder for no reason. Um, and then like an administration who is kind of spineless yeah. in the way of if someone's not protecting free expression, it is absolutely them in this or like as, with the information we have, it seems like they're the ones who are saying like, we're not going to protect anybody. Um, yeah, I mean, you can do that, but that just turns it into a fight of like, well, look, you're right, mm-hmm. but it's still not going to work out. Right. I and think it's, so. Is it more important for this to like work out? correctly for those marginalized people or for you to be right. And I think a lot of it can be, and having experienced this myself, is that sometimes the issue of this is not so much a you're going to get in trouble with the law, but like you uh, get baited into a con, like sort of like someone baits you into a confrontation. They record you shutting them down. They don't record what they said the first part. Right, there's no And then they put it onto social media so it becomes decontextualized. It spirals out into likely the sort of right wing outrage machine. Yeah. And then you have to deal with the out right wing outrage machine because the university administration said they're not gonna support anything. Yeah. You know, that's sort of a like that's where maybe there's sort of that sort of cowardice is there in that they're not willing to protect you as an employee. And that causes part of the problem, right? That's part yeah. of that institutional failure. Like they're saying the we're not gonna engage with it you're on your own. Yeah. And so that's where the institution or administration kind of passed the buck. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in some ways I'm not the right person for that because, um, the place I've worked is like, not great at, you know, treating employees. Right. Yes. So a lot of this to me, when I hear these sorts of complaints, this is probably kind of why I'm not, good at that sort of stuff is because I'm like, that to me is what work is. Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I think I come from this feeling of like, um, I get paid work to work. I don't get paid to like it. Right. And it's like, I get paid to do things. I don't get paid to determine how I feel about them. I think it's a lot of like, if you work for a job and something goes, maybe something doesn't work out right? Mm. Or like a member of the public is upset, right? It's kind of like, does your workplace maybe like come around you at least a little bit to be like, okay, you're still part of the institution or like the library, or do they say, well, Peter's on his own. Well, it you depends know, if I uh, followed the rules right. that I'm supposed to follow. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes those rules mean putting aside my personal values. right? And that's kind of part of what I get paid to do. And I think that in the academic world, it seems like maybe that's a newer it's facet also, of it's it. It's also where the context can matter. And one of the things I would wonder is like if there's a, sometimes a class can have like a specific, you have to have certain types of readings in them. Mm-hmm. And that like if you're, if someone were in a situation, which I don't think is this one, where you have to teach this poet, but then you get in trouble every time you do. 
Yeah. Like, that's another institutional failing. Well, you're sort of forced to talk, like if you have a class where you're forced to talk about race, gender, sexuality, it causes these problems to come up, but then the institution says, we're requiring you to do something where problems come up, but we're not going to support you when those problems come up. Like, yeah, that's where the institution has two, like you can't follow the rules because there's two conflicting rules. Well, I think that's why I'm saying I think I need something more specific. Mm -hmm. Because if this is coming up in, let's say, a gender studies class, and, you know, people are saying things that are sexist. But I'm like, okay, but are they saying sexist things because they're like, I did the reading, this is what I took away from it, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm like, well, it's not like just fucking crazy out of nowhere shit. And also, I'm like, well, in a gender and sexuality... In my opinion, it's kind of impossible to teach like a class, like a gender and sexuality class. If you're like, well, you can't, you can't basically have a discussion. It's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, it's sometimes like there would be I, no point to it. The less controversial version is when I teach small group communication uh -huh. and the students complain about having group projects. Right. And where I'm like, well, that's in the title. Tough shit. I mean, um, and like my colleagues who teach classes on gender, it'll be like gender and literature, or like gender and communication. Yeah. And they have the people who show up who are mad about like, gen you know, what, why are we talking about gender? Right. And it's like the, well, it's in the, it's, it's like being mad at a place that sells hamburgers when it's like hamburger stand. And you're like, why does this sell hamburgers? Right. It's like, well, you walked in the door. Well, and I will say too, sometimes when I was in college, mm -hmm. there was like, you know, you had your class classes you had to take and certain electives and whatever. There was one class that fulfilled two electives. So it was hugely advantageous to take it. Mm -hmm. And it was world literature by and about women. Right. So it was clearly the idea was like, people don't really want to take this class, but it does fulfill these two categories. So you did end up with a lot of people in that class who didn't necessarily want to be there. But I think the university system kind of set them up to be like, well, listen, take this class and, you know, you can basically save yourself an entire taking an entire other class. It's like a two for one special. Um, so sometimes I think the way those things are set up as well can contribute to like. You, what what are you trying to create? It's sometimes here? where you can have the difference of incentives where the person teaching the class has like one set of incentives and the university is kind of putting one set of in, different set of incentives in front of students like fulfill a bunch of gen ed right? yeah. is not the same thing as like I really want to teach literature by and about women like we don't have the same and you know maybe they don't have the same incentives where like one person's maybe trying to knock out a requirement and yeah. one person's trying to like really get into a topic and you sometimes that's okay like sometimes most of the students i've had who are trying to like knock out a requirement like they're either okay with the material or they kind of recognize like look if i'm here to knock out a requirement if they have certain levels of disagreement or objections they decide how much effort they want to put into those yeah and that's also the the attitude <laughs> you're looking at him that's also like, the attitude look, of, i'm here i'll do what i need to do to get this credit i'm out that's also probably different than in this example, which sounds like people are, you know, putting effort into the sort of more bigoted stuff. Like, there's sort of like there's the difference of bigotry from no effort versus like I'm trying to do it, blast out the bigotry sort of thing. 
Well, I think, okay, maybe one way I might suggest handling this in the advice portion is like, maybe at the beginning of the semester, you need to let the class know exactly what you can and can't do. Right. So you can just say to them, like, uh, let's say somebody in the class starts going down a sort of, goes, starts going on a racist tirade. Mm-hmm. I am not able to stop them. You as other peers in the class are able to stop them. You are able to say things to them or you're able to do these things. I am not. So I just want everyone in this classroom to understand that. That like, I'm, I'm not here. I'm not able to protect you. Right. Um, I'm not able to like safeguard anyone's feelings. And I cannot guarantee your sort of emotional safety in this class. Um, and that's because of restrictions that have been put on me. Another way to approach it that I've used occasionally is that one of the early things I do in class is set like community standards. Yeah. As I say, like, what what do you think the standards of conduct or behavior or expectations you have of your peers? Right. And to some extent with the students who might want to go the more like, I want to like do a racist tirade for the lols. Yeah. They know up front that like the community standards set by the other students don't tolerate that. Right. And so they're not like antagonizing me. They're going to be antagonizing the room. Right. And sometimes it's, you know, I have the power to do that. Maybe this person doesn't, but to say like, if someone violates these standards, like what do you think should happen? Like right. what do you think should be the, should there be consequences? What should they be? And if the room says, Hey, we should kick that person out, you know, like well, that's think- a putting a different, different spin. And I mean, I think it can be as simple as just kind of saying up front, like, it's not that I don't care. Right. It's not that I don't care about you students in the class. But, you know, here I'm going to project right now on the fucking 21st century screen, whatever the hell you guys use now. I'm going to project this thing that's like, here's the uh, the rule that mm-hmm. I have to abide by. Mm-hmm. So basically, here's what's going to happen. If someone in the class is bringing up some crazy bullshit and they're being like a bigoted asshole, I'm going to use the phrase, be that as it may, and then talk about something else. And that is how I'm going to deal with it. Right. Um, So when you hear the phrase, be that as it may, it's like the Pee Wee's Playhouse secret word. Right. And you know that I'm recognizing that what this person is saying is horrible. But I can't, I can't stop them. Right. I think the other part of the advice I have is like, let's say there's a piece of material that you keep teaching and it keeps resulting in the same problem, the same problem. You don't have to say that's a problem. I'm going to make a comparison. Like, let's say every time that I go for a four mile hike, Mm -hmm. I hurt myself somehow. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if I go seven miles, I'm fine. If I go two miles, I'm fine. It's something about this specific four-mile hike is causes me horrible pain, and I injure myself the same exact way every time I do it. I can spend all the time in the world trying to figure out why that happens or like what it is about this specific four-mile trail that's causing this problem. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be something inherent to that. It's not like I'm warning other people away from it. Right. But at some point, if you keep getting hurt doing the same thing, just stop doing it. If it's the like, same, just stop. If it's the same poetry or the same poet every single time. Yeah. Then 
that's actually the advantage sometime if you have a poetry class and you want to expose people to like black, queer, women, whatever it is. There's it's, a billion. There's a billion. <laughs> there's and you expose lot. them to someone who's not immediately well-known. Granted, in the age of like Wikipedia and other things, people could figure it out. Or they'll figure it out like when they're in the middle of the class. Sure. But they're not going to be able to like, it, it sort of raises the bar or it raises the difficulty of doing bigotry they can't come in prepared to do it that day like can't psych themselves up to do it like right they have to do a little bit more work to get to the place to do that right and that just takes more effort so like you can kind of you, you might mitigate some of the low effort bigotry like someone who's doing the higher effort bigotry is like just going to be less common yeah i mean i just i look at it from a practical standpoint of like uh if if I was a personal trainer and someone was bench pressing and every time they got up around 250, they injured their shoulder mm -hmm. every single time. Like this happened three or four times. I would be like, I think that we need to do something different. You I think we need to just, you're just not going to be bench pressing you need, because there's no reason for you to do that. We need you to bench press up to the, you know, like maybe we keep your bench press at like 230 or 225, like far away from the injury point. Yeah, I'd be like, let's just keep you at 175. Mm -hmm. We'll work your overhead press. Right. We'll do something else. We'll find ways to work the muscles, the relevant muscle groups that don't do that. Yeah, but we're not going to do bench press we're not at 250 because I've seen you that. hurt your shoulder four times doing it perfectly correctly right and so at some point i think it's like about maybe you just gotta like this is what i'm saying about giving up being right because mm -hmm. maybe being right isn't as important as like just being successful in what you're trying to do and it's like yeah i mean there's no real physical reason that the bench press should be hurting you that way but it does every time i i think there's also a point maybe is to recognize for this person is that this person is put into a spot of having to make a bad choice because a lot of other people made bad choices. Right. So, like, they might be making the choice to not teach these particular poets or types of poetry or topics, but at the same time, it's not necessarily... It's not their individual fault. Like, it's not as no. if they're the ones who should... In a way, like, kind of declining from that topic is maybe not doing the... It's not doing the heroic thing, but when people have done the craven, cruel, and cowardly things like all the way up to you, is it your obligation to fight fight the world? Well, and doing the heroic thing in this case means getting fired. Or in her case, in this his case, he says it doesn't seem likely. But also like doing the heroic thing of keeping this material in might be causing damage to those other students. So maybe right. you just can't like like you said, you're not doing like you're not really fighting the bigotry by going forward, maybe? Yeah, it's. Um, I would compare it to like in a library newsletter that I did. I was talking about drag queen story time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, people do that because they want to support the LGBT community. But if you live in a community that like comes out vehemently against it and it causes a huge uproar right. and it does this and that, I'm like, well, on the one hand, if you go through with it, then it's like, I guess the library's on my side. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, but did you like shake out the rug and find all the bugs underneath it? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you kind of took away this person's choice on whether or not they wanted to shake out the rug or just leave it where it was. Right. And I think that sometimes I'm like, that should be their choice. Mm -hmm. If they want to go like, 
beat around the bushes and see what's living in there, they can do that. And if they want to ignore it, they can do that. So sometimes I think, yeah, if you're doing that thing that always seems to result in this, like maybe you should leave it up to somebody else's choice whether or not they want to like go down the road of exposing the villains among them. Right. And not make that choice for them. All right. All right. So I've got a third one. Okay. It's about writing. Oh, God. Okay. Are you ready for this one? Maybe. All right. Recently, I rented a private office in a co-working space so I could work on personal writing projects. Okay. About two weeks into my tenure there, I heard screams. <laughs> okay. When I went to investigate, I saw a man beating someone savagely with a metal pipe. In the co-working space? Uh, I think so. Okay. Like, nearby. I ran to my office, called 911, and then returned only to see the man walking in my direction. I ran back to my office and hid until the police arrived. The victim, she was the office manager of the sort of co-working space, was rushed to the hospital where she was declared dead. The story that emerged is that the man, a fellow client who had been living in his office, was being evicted by the office manager. Okay. Um, because I'm a writer, it's not surprising that a number of my friends, writers and non-writers alike, have asked whether I am writing about this story. <laughs> Yet from the beginning, I've struggled to even talk about what I witnessed. I do not want to dine out on it. It feels unseemly to me, if not outright wrong, to take advantage of my very accidental connection to this murderer, this murder and its victim. I'm troubled by the idea of viewing another woman's death as material. What are the ethics of writing about what is, at heart, someone else's tragedy? Okay. Um, well, I guess the harsh first thing I would say is like, if you're unwilling to sort of like write about something like that, then you're not going to make it mm -hmm. unless you're like going to write cozy romances or something, which I guess I'm guessing isn't this person's bag. Because right. if this was Beverly Jenkins and was writing cozy romances, probably wouldn't have friends being like, oh, you're going to write about this woman being savagely beaten with a pipe. Right. right. Like that's not going to happen. I mean, I think there are, well, okay, I don't think it's unethical, mm -hmm. um, but it, it can be more or less ethical depending on how you do it. Right. So I, I would give two options here to do this ethically. One is the option of, um, as my mentor would say it, uh, fiction is the lie that tells the truth truer. So do you have to tell this specific story? Do you have to tell the story of, the woman being beaten to death by a guy who was living in the office space uh, with a pipe, mm -hmm. you know, all that shit. Not necessarily, but like, what's, what's the sort of point of the story, right? It's like, well, there's like housing crisis going on. People are doing wild things. There's something to this about like, you know, you could change it. You could have it be a guy is living in his office and he works for like a bank. Right. And he's like created a George Costanza under the desk bed mm -hmm. and he's been living there and it's like very difficult for him. And then his boss is kicking him out. So he kills his boss right. in like a moment of rage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could do other things that fictionalize it enough that it still keeps the same ideas, um, but isn't the exact story. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, there. I was thinking of a different version where you change maybe the the amount of money involved. You get an attorney, right? Sure. Who's got a really nice office, um, but he, you know, 
it's got to keep. He had to make the choice between where he could live and getting his practice going. Mm -hmm. He lives in his office, and nobody thinks much of it because at first, because you know lawyers work late hours, right? Um, and so the fact that he's there all the time, he's maybe there, he's doing a lot of overnights, doesn't seem too weird. <laughs> Until he's like discovered at some point, um, and it you know in a moment of desperation he does something violent, right? right. And I think that's kind of the the core of that truth, you know, is the kind of a desperate person doing desperate things. Yeah. You know, like sort of a murder that happens out of desperation because like being evicted from your workplace and your home at the same time. Right. Um, is a lot, maybe a lot to take in. Yeah. Um, you know, the second option I would provide is, I mean, it can be an out for just about, you can get away with writing about anything, mm -hmm. but is basically like when you're telling the story, are you honoring the story? Right. So in other words, are you telling the story in such a way that it's not like, um, mocking what happened? It's not, um, it's not the lurid true crime podcast trend sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, and it can even be it I don't it's hard to describe because it's not necessarily about being tasteful. Right. Or something like that. I think it's more about like telling the story in such a way cuz the the sort of sad truth of this thing is that like and the sad truth of being a writer in a situation like that, um you could choose not to write the story cuz it's quote unquote not your story. Mhm. Mm but the dead lady's not going to write it. Right. And the guy with the pipe's probably not going to write it. So you are the most qualified to tell this story. Like, mm -hmm. of the people, of the options, you're the most qualified. And I, I just think that, um, you know, okay, like being, disrespecting the story or not doing it justice would kind of be like if you turned it into an action movie sequence where, Unlike what happened, you dove in and saved the day and so, something like that. Or if you created a situation where it was like uh, one person is clearly a total monster and the other one is like totally innocent and, you know, mm -hmm. that's whatever. Th those things would not really be honoring the story. But I, I think you can tell the story. I mean, I guess this probably isn't what everyone feels, but I, I feel... I feel that you can own any story that you write. Mm -hmm. And so if you take the time to write it and put it down and do all the things and make it a a story and if people want to read it, it's fine. I think that with someone writing in, like that almost seems like, it seems like they're the kind of person who could write this story. Yeah. The person to be more suspicious of is the person who just wrote it without thinking, just be like, I'm just going to use it. Not to say that they can't, but like, this person is at least reflective enough to be like, should I, should I go forward? Right. Like they're having the thought, like they're, they recognize that like going, like not writing the story is an option. Like it's a choice. Sure. And so then they say like, I've made the choice to write it. How do I respect it? As opposed to not reflecting on like, I could not write about this. Like I could let this go. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not the biggest person of like, you know, you shouldn't write about something unless you're like the number one most uh, closest to the situation. You're the the one person because unfortunately, the person closest to a situation isn't always the best person to write about it. Mm -hmm. And experiencing something um, doesn't qualify you to write about it. 
So I think that's something important important to consider is that like someone can write about something like a personal experience they had that's um okay. Another example is a Chuck Palahniuk example. Right. Which is um in Tom Spanbauer's workshop, he would often tell people not to write about um, sexual assaults. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is because if they did that as one of their first things and they they weren't very talented yet, they hadn't like crafted and worked on their writing ability, um, your first few stories are usually not very good. Right. And they're very clumsy. And what ends up happening is it, turns a, a horrific story into sort of a dark comedy. Yeah. Because it's like, it'll be inept and weird and like phrasing will be wrong and the tone will be all nutty and like, it'll be a sudden transition from like, it was a bright sunny day and then this thing happened and it was horrible. The next day, right. that, you know, things like that, that you're like, this doesn't work. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think it's okay to write about those things and good to write about those things, but I think you should write about those things when you feel like you're up to the task of conveying um, conveying it in such a way that you can kind of help the reader see what you're trying to show them. It's that you kind of are taking a position that like anyone can write about anything, but that doesn't mean you should you should write about anything right there can be a you should have a few stories under your belt before you explore topics like sexual assault um yeah or like before before you bring that to a workshop right before you try and sell that you know write about that whatever you want on your own and like so on and so forth Mm -hmm. but like it 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 just puts, it's a, a difficult thing to bring in a, uh, there's nothing worse than a really, really badly written nonfiction about a traumatic event sure. that happened to that person. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, how do I talk about this? And how do I help? This person is not expressing what they think they're expressing. Um, it's the problem of like when you have a writing workshop where someone is treating it like their therapy session, you know, is that what you're saying? No, it's more like um, they have to be, you got to be good enough at writing something that when you bring it into the workshop, if it's something that's very close to your heart, you can handle talking about it on a craft level as opposed to talking about the actual event or sometimes like people would bring something to a workshop that was like very sensitive and very close to their heart. Mm -hmm. And someone would say like, well, in this scene, this happens and da, 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 da. And it doesn't really work for these reasons. And they would say, well, that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, if that's how it happened, you know, that's fine. I'm not arguing with what happened, but it doesn't work as a narrative. Right. Um, so anyway, I I think what I'm trying to say is like experiencing something doesn't necessarily qualify you to write about it. Um but also not experiencing it most directly doesn't disqualify you. It's the th- like you said before, like the dead person can't write about it. The person who might be among the two who are be- 
the person who did it probably isn't might not be the best qualified probably not you know i'm going to take a guess that you know if you get into a point of upset anger and desperation to beat someone to death with a pipe you might not be able to have a it might be hard to have a reflective view on that situation you're probably not going to be too objective right and it's going to be hard for you to take on the contrary or like you might yeah like you're you're going to have a weird perspective yeah um on that one yeah so i you know i think that i here's what i think the right thing to do is if you're in a writing question or situation mm-hmm. write it see how you feel about it there's something to be said about writing it and putting it in a drawer like you can write it and then like once you're done with it but decide like i wrote it this was the best i could do with it it's okay to put stuff maybe that's something that some writers know and some writers don't is like you can write things and like put them in the drawer and maybe you come back to it someday maybe you don't but with something like this if you have that uncertainty it might be putting like that this is going to go in the drawer for a while like you let it sit yeah well and just i think that um it's like in the previous question i was like it would help me to know the specifics right Mm -hmm. and i think the thing about like is this ethical to write or not isn't really the question i think the question should be i've written this thing what is it like Now that it's done, it's like debating the ethics of a story or a book or an essay that doesn't exist is pointless. It's like utterly pointless because there have been countless things that are written that shouldn't work, that do, um, that would seem unethical on the surface and are completely ethical and like beloved and made good points and did a lot of good things. And there are things that are like totally harmless, um, you know, if someone was like, I'm going to write about this. And you're like, yeah, I cannot see how this would go wrong. Right. And it totally does. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, I think I think the right thing to do is to write the thing. And then don't, don't see how you feel about the sort of philosophical concept of whether or not you should write the thing. Decide how you feel about the piece you wrote. Right. You might, that's what I meant. Is like you can come out. You can take the piece you wrote, put it in the drawer, and be like, I have to recognize that it's not the ethics of the should I write about this topic, but because no one's going to care about whether the ethics of should you write about it in the first place, they are going to care about the thing you wrote. Right. And you have to be prepared for the evaluation of that. Right. Um, and frankly, if they're thinking about the ethics of you writing about it in the first place, then that piece was probably not great. Right. It would be kind of like, you know, if if someone was like, um, Christopher Nolan's next movie is going to be about slavery. Right. And you, I think everyone would be like, ooh, that's dicey, mm-hmm. you know, to go to that topic as like a white guy director. Um, but before you could really say anything definitively, you'd have to know what it was. Right. Because you're like, well, talking about, uh, let's, let's just say it's going to be about Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, well, I know what it's about, but it really, whether or not it's like a good or a bad thing is going to depend a lot on what the thing is. Mm -hmm. Not so much the idea of the thing, but what it actually is in reality on film. Um, And so that's, that's, I think the same thing for this situation. Yeah. I think there, you can evaluate the work that is written, not whether or not it's okay to write about it in the first place. That's a, you know, 
Usually the answer is yes. Um, but I think it is valuable for that person to be like, are you, like you said before, are you willing to be fair and do justice to the event, right? In whatever form. Um, but I'm guessing since this person is considering not doing it, like it seems more likely that they, they, they at least have the potential or possibility. Yeah, I just, I think just instead of, don't waste your time deciding whether or not this thing that doesn't exist should be attempted. Because mm-hmm. here's the other thing. You could spend all the time in the world deciding whether or not it's ethical, and then you try and write it, and it sucks. Right. So then you're like, well, what's who cares? Mm-hmm. If it's, uh, whether or not it's ethical, if it just sucks, there's no reason to release it into the world anyway. Right. <laughs> so that it, if it's, if it's going to go in the drawer, there's no point in, like, have the debate after you've written it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and as far as that goes, too, I personally, I don't think anything's off limits as far as what you write, what you draft, mm-hmm. like what you go into and like, um, you know, things that may or may not end up in a final version of something. It's all just sort of like, I think that's not the time to think about the reception of it. It's the point where you're starting to think about showing it to people who are not obliged to read whatever you give them. Like a workshop, for example, you might have different ethics about like, this has to be workshop ready, for example, Mm. and all the things that go into that. Um, You might skip, you know, if you know, like there's sometimes workshops where people have like sensitivities or no-go places and you're like, I'm not going to bring, I'm not going to force somebody in my workshop to deal with something because I want to write about it. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of... I w- okay. Um, I'm going to try and make this short. Um, so, like, in, I think, the 70s, they had, like, the scab season of the NFL mm-hmm. where it was, like, no professional players were playing. They were basically all amateurs. Right. And it was kind of a disaster and they all sucked and, like, what? It was just, you know, some but- fucking mechanic was now playing football. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had an idea for a story, and it was basically like a uh, running man type sport, mm-hmm. but they had to do a scab season because mm-hmm. <laughs> their regular people were all like Like their regular sort of, what is it, like they called like the gladiators or whatever, yeah. like we're all on strike. Yeah. And so they just got a bunch of regular dudes to be the gladiators. Exactly. And, you know, th- and so then because the regular dudes are the gladiators... The running man contestants also were down a tier. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just causes a bunch of basically sports slash business related issues in the midst of this blood sport. Mm-hmm. But so part of the idea too was to sort of talk about like, because I think right now there's like the two theories of football. One is like the Malcolm Gladwell theory that football will go away because mm-hmm. it's like a savage, horrible thing that's hurting a lot of people. The other theory is that it will partially go away. However, its fans and adherents will be more rabid than ever because it will come to stand in for a certain kind of person. Right. And they'll become super passionate. It'll be kind of like gun ownership Mm -hmm. where it's like, well, a tiny percent of the people own all the guns because they're like super into it. So either you're not into football at all and that's like 75% of people or you're like, this is my entire life. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's some of that element happening in the story as well. Um, So part of the thing was it sort of is like a utopic society except for the blood sport. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, you know, a reversal of what you normally see in a lot of these blood sport things where it's a dystopia, right? Your Hunger Games is like a dystopia. Your Battle Royale is like a dystopic idea. There's something where like this running man, almost like it's a relic, you know, it'd be interesting if this utopia came out of a dystopia, like sort of a people got their, sh- you know, like people got their shit together. Yeah. They realized that this weird kind of corporate capitalism thing was bad and changed it and did something that like people were generally like taken care of, had healthcare, education, you know, they slowed down the environmental degradation as much as they could. Outside of the blood sport, the world is Star Trek, the next generation. Right. Like, you know, people live to 200 years old. There's no such thing as like uh, wealth disparity. Everyone's happy. You know, it's all good. In the way that Star Trek, you know, I haven't watched as much Next Generation. We could turn this into a Star Trek podcast for more, uh, <laughs> more, more uh, downloads. But like the Klingons were always that group kind of in the Star Trek universe that are like, we want to like do war gladiator fight, but it's yeah. kind of the, what is the purpose? Like, yeah. what is the sort of goal? Because you're not fighting over like, you don't need stuff anymore. Like you're not fighting for territory or land or the survival of your people. You're just kind of fighting because it's what you've always done. Right. Well, so yeah, I would say the earth on this story is Federation space. Right. Where it's like, everything's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And like their missions are of peace and, you know, brokering political deals and not a lot of, like, blowing things up or killing things. The utopic world is mostly trying to, like, they spend a lot of their time trying to reverse various types of environmental damage, mm-hmm. you know, which takes up a lot of their resources, but they recognize that it's better than what they were doing before. And so most people are just kind of disinterested in blood sport because it's like, that doesn't save, that didn't save our ocean. And that's the thing. Blood sport is, like, the one holdover remaining thing Mm -hmm. and it's the one thing that's still there um okay but so here's part of that right they're like psychologically profiling people these scab players right and they have to find people because they're like part of the problem with this blood sport in a utopia is it's hard to find people who uh will like get angry or have some kind of emotion because uh the world just isn't that way. So there, the opening scene of this story was basically this guy hooked up to this monitoring equipment and they were saying a bunch of like racial slurs and things like that to him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the way the story opened was like, you know, uh, bad word for Asian person, bad word for black person, bad word for gay pl- person, you know, and they're like monitoring. And so like, that's how the story began. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, as I work on it, I'm like, I don't, if, if I was going to actually try and place this story somewhere, right. I don't think that's how I'm going to open the story because that's just like, it's a lot to ask of somebody to just be like, if you start your story with the N word, you're right. asking a lot from your readers and you're going to turn off a lot of people, understandably, mm-hmm. who might be in for the ride, but they're just like, Look, man, you can't have that the first fucking word in your story. Um, but here's my point. It's fine to do that in the draft. Right. Because you're like, well, I, I just got to do this thing so I can get to the thing and mm-hmm. get to the next thing and get to the next thing. And then by the time I get to 10 things down the road, I'll be like, oh, this is where it really starts. This is how it 
you know, whatever. You could kind of like, you had to sort of use this as your starting place to build the rest of the world. Yeah. And once you have the world built out a little more, you're like, okay, I don't need to introduce this first. It's the scaffolding on the building. Right. You put up the scaffolding so you can build the building. Mm-hmm. But then when the building's done, you take the scaffold down. You're like, I, if you've built some load-bearing scaffolding, maybe you've got a problem. You fucked up. And that's part of like where if you've... If, if the elements of the story that this person needs, you know, that are part of this draft, like if, if the scaffolding's still in there, then you didn't respect the material. Yeah. Yeah, and so... Yeah. Point being, nothing's off limits as far as when you're drafting. I mm-hmm. think you just got to go with what is there and then draft. And then later on, when you've got it fleshed out, that's when you can start thinking about, like, does this belong? Does this fit? Does this not? Because, again, like, before there's anything for it to fit with, how do you know if it fits or not? It's sort of like... It's one, with what? Once you've written it, too, you might have a different question of... Would the family member of the victim or the perpetrator or the perpetrator's family and friends, like, if they would see themselves in it, right? If they'd be like, that's that's this event. Or they're likely to see themselves in it because, like, you're not, you know, you're not publishing it in, like, some small literary journal. You're publishing it in a bigger venue. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's a, I'm not saying that you can't because someone would see themselves in it, but you might be like, do I want to put it out in a way that they would obviously identify themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's the weird thing about something like this, too, though, is like I would be with you as far as I don't want someone to identify themselves. Like if it's someone I personally knew. Right. But is not a person that's at all in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Um, when you murder somebody, you kind of put yourself in the public eye. And when you're murdered, unfortunately, you are somewhat in the public eye. Right. <laughs> and like, I think that you have if we can talk about like a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, Unfortunately, when you murdered, I think you lose some of that and by no fault of your own. I mean, I guess it's like a continued victimhood status. Right. But you know, I guess the other thing that I would have to say about this too, is that I'm like, there are times that I find true crime to be intensely disrespectful Mm -hmm. of the dead. Not because it's like, it, it doesn't actually bother me that much. But what I mean is like, if someone's taking the time to write out a story and craft a narrative and like put the things together, um, that to me is doing a lot more justice to the story, even if it's not very good or like if it's imperfect or whatever, mm-hmm. than just basically saying, just reading the New York Times article out loud. Right. And that's another element of this, too, where I'm like, well, look, if the newspaper can do it, you can do it. Right. The newspaper is going to print that story. Um, There's also the thing, like, if the newspaper could print that story, you haven't done justice to it. Yeah, I mean, if as you wrote it, they would do it. Yeah. But, yeah, the point being, like, I think that this is something that only, like, uh, dabbling writers get real precious about. Mm -hmm. Because it's like... Well, the newspapers had no problem selling newspapers off of tragedy forever. Right. Like, that's always what they've done and always will do. Um, 24-hour news cycle is all about it, right? Like, do they have any question about whether or not they're going to cover the latest mass shooting? We live in a world where there are true crime podcasts of various levels of respect for the story. 
Yeah, and like I pick on true crime podcasts, but really I think like news is worse. Because oh, I'm like, yeah. I get it. Like if something's happening right now and it's like, oh, I probably shouldn't go downtown. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. But then when it's basically you just have like eight hours of footage of a helicopter flying over a school where probably people are being shot inside. And I'm like, what is this doing? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, is this news? I'm just watching a horrible thing happen. But is that news? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I have... I have feelings about it. Right. And then I'm like, yeah. And so then, you know, you go to commercial and it's like, oh, by Tide. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, Tide's got a billion eyes on it right now. I don't know if it's what they wanted, but right. here it is. Does it get out blood stains out of your fourth grader's clothes? It get, Does it get the uh, urine stains out of a police uniform? Yeah, no kidding. But so I think I think sometimes writers worry about it too much. And you should just sort of relax a little bit and be like, the effort you're putting in is much greater. And just the amount that you're thinking about it already is a lot more than a lot of other jerk-offs have thought about it. And just, I think, sort of the act of thinking about whether or not you're going to do a good job with the story is enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those were the three questions that I had. Boom. You gave some advice. I did. I did. You, You did a helpful snowman. You helped. Well, maybe. Maybe. I don't know if I helped that college professor very much. I, I think that that college professor's structural problems are like, they're in a spot where, he's in a spot where he's just, he's kind of jammed up. He's got no yeah. good choices. Maybe this person just needs to go to like, what is that one? Evergreen State or whatever. Mm-hmm. That one seems pretty uh, wacky. Do Go somewhere <laughs> else or, yeah. Try, here's, maybe here's what I should say to that person. Maybe I've got it now. Right. Um, if you feel like you're too far left of most of your university, then you need to find the most like whacked out lefty university and try and go there. Mm-hmm. And so then you can try feeling like a little too conservative for your, you know, right. and just ping pong back and forth until you sort of find until you find the one point, the, find where you, you know, you have to find where you fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it just sucks because like right now, It's just impossible. It's like, it just feels like everything is so incredibly polarized that it's like, you can't, I don't know how you would teach a class like, uh, feminism in literature. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? That would be impossible because it's like, if you can't talk about it, then you can't really teach it. Right. I mean, that's, it's sort of like if you couldn't, they're like, well, you can teach math class, but you know, you can't, uh, we can't acknowledge the existence of triangles. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, that's going to be challenging. And like, what is there even a point? Should we can I, even bother? Can I acknowledge the existence of squares or rectangles, which really are just two triangles? Yeah, or like, you can only use whole numbers. Right. No decimal plates, points or uh, fractions. You are two or three. Pick a side. Yeah. Yeah, and that seems like how it feels sometimes. And at which point I would say like, well, there's really no point in teaching math if we're going to teach it wrong. Right. Or like, you know, we're not going to give them the skills they need to do math. So why have a math class? Mm-hmm. So if I guess if you can't teach those topics, like they're probably that class just shouldn't exist at that university. I mean, frankly. 
that's probably unfortunately true. I think where some of those universities get stuck is because it's not their choice or the student's choice. It's a, it's a choice made by a bunch of people who are, un, who are not quite unaccountable, but like they don't have to deal with the fallout or consequences. Yeah. No, that's always, that's, this has always been my like warning cry of about free college. Right. Cause I'm like, y'all, okay, I work for a place that is taxpayer funded. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, that's going to, if universities are like more directly taxpayer funded and it's like free college, um, there's going to be a way more of this shit going on. Cause like way more people are going to have stake in what's being taught, even if they never went to college. Cause they're going to be like, well, my tax money pays for the college. So yeah, I should get to say what happens there. I, I think about that differently. Like, I guess I don't agree. I don't agree that the outcome is the same. I think people will have more stake in it, but I also think more people will have experience of it. And that can be different in that there's a lot of times where I've had to talk with fairly like liberal left-leaning people who are like, I hate safe spaces. Safe spaces are everywhere kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I had to be like, and I've been teaching for decades and I have seen maybe one safe space anywhere and it's mostly like a book club yeah so it's sort of like the the level of panic about a thing can be disproportionate to its actual impact and when most people are like you know a lot of folks are just trying to like get an education learn some things you know improve themselves a little bit maybe improve a job skill and they start to recognize that perhaps the more hyperbolic things are not every day like it's not that they wouldn't deal with the problems but they would recognize the proportionality of them i i understand what you're saying but that's what i'm saying too is that uh you're not dealing with the reality you're dealing with the perception right so even if in reality there aren't safe spaces and stuff if everyone thinks there are you're gonna have to deal with that bullshit. I'm saying free college comes with a lot of bullshit. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> like, I mean, I think it's that like we're gonna pay for it in another way. <laughs> I think that there, you know, or I used to maybe think that there'd be some people where it'd be like, "Have you seen a safe space?" And they'd have to go, "No." I'm like, okay, right? So maybe it's not that big, um, but you'd still get those people like, "Oh, but it's because they're secret. They're cabals. They're everywhere." Well, those maniacs are. Every sector of the world mm-hmm. has that, mm-hmm. and actually. I like those people because then I think more normal people hear that and then they're like, oh my God, is that what I sound like? <laughs> I, I'm not going to throw in with them. At some point you have to say like, if whatever position you have aligns yourself with those people, you got to be like, am I in the, I think it was Yahtzee Crosaw talked about like the shit covered man problem mm. of like, if you held a position or you were stated an idea and a man completely covered in feces comes up and says i agree with that i like the way you think yeah you'd start to rethink whatever you just said yeah it's kind of like you know this is a horrible example but i'm going with it all right of like when someone who is intensely ridiculously unattractive Mm -hmm. compliments your looks yes and you're like i don't know what to make of that Mm -hmm. like is that what's happening Mm -hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't feel good Mm-hmm. The way that it probably should, mm-hmm. but when it's just somebody who's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just, I don't know what to say. 
I guess part of me with the whole like the university system or whatever is I'm just sort of like, I don't go to college. Right. I'm not teaching in a college. Like, I don't think I'm ever going back to college at this point in my life. So whatever. I don't know. You guys do whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. <laughs> but also I feel like as far as, you know, curricula and stuff like that, I think people get a little too meddlesome with it because I'm like, well, listen, the whole point of this person's education was to learn how to teach this to other people. Mm -hmm. So at some point, don't we have to acknowledge that they probably know more than we do? They probably know what they're doing, or at least, like, it's not saying that they should be above conversations with people, but, like, they should have some, like, you know, a broad accountability to the general public, but perhaps we're getting a little too specific and individualized and, like, narrow. Yeah, and I mean, there's also, okay, my entire time in college, I had uh, two professors that I would say were pretty bad, mm -hmm. and one who was, like, really bad, and she was a sociology professor, and was basically, she told us lies. Right. I mean, she was lying about, she said that a woman had won the New York Marathon, and, like, she was, she was very uh, woman-forward feminism. Mm -hmm. And so was saying that like women were winning these sporting events. And I was like, that's objectively not true. Right. I mean, if you want to make a point about like equality and stuff, I, I'm, I'll go with you on that. But when you tell me a woman won the New York marathon, that's not true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, that's not accurate. <laughs> so like, you know, someone like that sucks. And the problem that a university will always have is there's always going to be somebody who sucks and who's, bad at their job and then bad in such a way that you know like maniacs will look at that person and be like these goddamn liberals are telling lies about the New York Marathon or something right. and, and you know you gotta look at that as like well look this person did that but also I was like 18 or 19 and mm -hmm. knew that that wasn't true and also was just able to accept like you know I'm just gonna get through this class like, kinda, I don't need to buy this person's entire philosophy of life. <laughs> kind of like the writing example. Like sometimes classes and pieces of writing, some people believe them to be incredibly powerful, like they're going to change the world or change someone's mind. But most of the time people read most like short stories or nonfiction pieces and they like it. And then like two weeks later, they'll maybe recall a couple details about it. And then two years later, they might even forget that they read it or took the class in the first place. Yep. Like, the thing that most people don't... Or like, people know about education if they think about it hard enough is that they recognize, like, they've gone to classes and they've learned basically nothing. Yeah. And, or, like, they forgot a lot of it or they... It doesn't, like... It didn't shape their worldview and make them into, like... Into some type of, like, Antifa super soldiers afterwards. No, I mean, I... I don't think I emerged from college super different than I would have had I not gone to college as far as my personal beliefs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, I don't think they changed that much in college. And I think, too, the other thing is that, like, those things just change over those years naturally. Right. And so, like, I don't know. It just doesn't. Sometimes I've said things about colleges and I'll say whatever about colleges, but overall I'm kind of like mostly unconcerned with the university system. Mm -hmm. 
I think sometimes it's unfortunate because I do think um, the university system is mostly staffed and whatever by more left-leaning people than probably conservative or moderate people. And so whenever I see an imbalance like that, I think it's not a great thing. But overall, I don't know that it's a huge problem. And I don't know that it's ever been any different. So there's something about like, you know, if you say like this might be a not ideal situation, but you may not have a way of fixing it, right? Sometimes when people see that sort of slightly more left than right, for example, or maybe not been many. I think they do tend to encounter more people in the political center who have like the staff type jobs. Yeah. And also like it depends a lot on what department you have in a university where like yep. you see a lot of centrists in the business school is what I'm saying. Like, yes. You know, or like you're not going to see a lot of radical leftists there. Like that's the, that is one of my bugbears when people talk about the university's totally left, but they don't talk about a business school ever. Well, but that's the thing, right? Because you're like, I also don't think it's good that the business school is like all conservative. Right. What I'm saying is I think everyone should be a little bit of both Mm -hmm. or like a little bit spread out on the spectrum. But at the same time, I don't think that a job teaching comp classes at a university is going to be attractive to a lot of conservative people. Like, because that's just not their world. Um, and so, to an extent, that's just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that's a problem. It's sort of a thing of like, you have to say, does to make it attractive to conservatives, do you have to change the job? But there's also the answer like, well, maybe you have to change perhaps what that conservative person values, if that makes sense. Like, you may have to, like, if you can't change what conservatism is, right? Or what that person values about conservatism to make that job more attractive to them. Like sometimes we get focused on, we have to change the job, but maybe like if, you know, maybe it's not, maybe the job is perfectly fine as it is, but doesn't fit this person's like value system very well. And so it's just not going to work for them. Well, let me talk about it from my world, library world, Mm -hmm. heavily, heavily female, like 80 to 90% female. Mm -hmm. I mean, super, super skewed. And so I, for the most part, I don't think the job is inherently female, but then sometimes you have to wonder when it's that skewed, whether or not there is something to like, and this is a kind of a touchy subject for some people, but whether there is like biologically preferable things or like societally, uh, gender being a construct, right? Right. And if gender is a construct, that's fine. We still have to deal with the consequences of it. It's still a real thing. Like, or maybe I should say, if gender is a construct and it's not technically a real thing, the consequences of it existing are still real. Well, it's like it's like other things like money or debt. Like they don't yeah. exist in nature, right? You know, and ju- but that's also where we sometimes get stuck. Of like, just because something's a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't have power. Right. In fact, if something is a social construct, it makes it easier to change than if it's a natural construct. Right. So sometimes I'm like, could the could the job in the library change to be more uh, appealing to men? Maybe. And like, there are some ways that I think that could be done concretely that I would approve of. Mm-hmm. For example, um, 
when people do story times, they often do it in a sing-songy little kid voice, like a little bit, not baby talk, but in that direction. And I'm like, do we have to do that? Um, they always do like songs, dancing, finger plays between stories. And I'm like, do we have to do that though? Because like, I remember being a little boy and I didn't like that. Right. And like, I still don't like dancing and men tend to not be as into dancing and that kind of stuff. And so it is like, well, I think if we just said like, of course you can do those things, but you don't have to do those things. On the story time planning sheet, it doesn't sort of have that in there as a requirement. And like when I did story times, if I didn't do that, there was a discussion about whether I was doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like, well... I mean, I do like the opening song that we always do. I do the closing song, but I don't do a song between every book because I don't like singing. And I don't presume that a lot of every little kid likes singing. They don't know the fucking songs. Right. I don't know the songs. Like, I didn't, I didn't learn these songs. This is not a thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, point being like, I can accept that Sometimes I'm just sort of like, you know, it's just a more female field. Right. And maybe that's just how it is. And it, it, it's probably not causing a ton of problems. I do think it would be better if the book world was a little more male, mm -hmm. because I think that might bring more men to books, which I think would be a positive thing overall. But at the same time, I'm like, but how, how do you do that? You know what I mean? And like, you could even say like, we need a a male librarian and we need to hire one, you might not get a single male applicant. And that's pretty common. So you're like, well, what do you do about that? And so I kind of wonder or suspect it's similar in a university setting where it's like, well, look, in the business school, we don't get a lot of like uh, former hippies <laughs> who are applying to be the marketing professor. And we don't get a lot of um, former finance bros who are like willing to come lecture in the English department. Like they just, they aren't there. It's something about like when you said like, there's not a lot of former hippies. Like I remember one of the things that there was an episode of planet money mm -hmm. where they wanted to talk to a socialist economist who worked at a university in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they looked everywhere they could and they found like two. Yeah. And then you sort of say like, someone who works at a university like in an economics department or a business school who was not like capitalism good and is like two people. Right. And that gives you that idea of like an imbalance to some degree. Um, but part of what you often think about is like, it is sometimes goes to those like pipeline problems, which can be a kind of excuse, right? Like you have all of these schools and jobs and everything else at different tiers of university. You have all of these different libraries and library schools and library programs with really different sort of systems. And like, if none of them are coming through, right, that sort of speaks maybe not to like people, like an individual library or library school or library system making a choice, but like a field has made a choice, mm -hmm. even if it wasn't like deliberate or conscious. Um, there probably is something to be said about like, you know, maybe there is something broadly in, you know, that's always the thing where you say there's something broadly in like masculinity that might not make a library job attractive. Mm -hmm. And that's 
not something that libraries can solve, right? That's sort of the, not the other side where it's not their fault and they can't do better, like a library world can't do better. But like if the problem is a certain type of masculinity values like big money, big success, big like power domination sort of things, which is not really fair, but like if that's what people get as messages, then the library job is not going to be attractive to those men seeking that. Yes, and I think there are other, you know, that that's where I... You'd have to get the men who are willing to push against that sort of, like, those forces, but then also be interested in libraries. Well, I think that's the thing, though, is, like, it's not, to me, it's not just that, though, because I think, mm-hmm. okay, a lot of times that's the discussion we get locked into that right. doesn't work, because it's like, well, who cares about attracting that kind of person because they have shitty values and it's like it's maybe not shitty values like I'm not maybe I did the unfair thing but maybe like there's some things that maybe people who are more masculine like have certain values that a library job just doesn't match and just never will well I think uh, something you know like uh, Poon Master Flex worked at a community college right and she worked with like one of the programs she worked with was the diesel mechanic program Mm-hmm. mostly male, mm-hmm. but also had a fair number of female students. And something that was very common among them is they looked at like her job, which would be in an office, in a cube, whatever, talking to people about their feelings and stuff like that. Fucking nightmare. Right. That would be horrible for them. Um, they would rather do anything other than that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a pretty common type of masculinity that feels that way. Right. And so the library type work is not going to be appealing to them. Um, it's not a type of work where you make a thing. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have a product at the end of the day. You don't have a a building that you built. You don't have like something you can hold in your hands and be like, this is what I accomplished today. You know, it's a different kind of work. And so I I don't know that if you want something like to get those people who are interested, like when you think about that product thing, like you don't have that product made at the end of the day. Like sometimes there are plenty of men who go into like various types of service jobs. Mm -hmm. Right. But like some of those other service jobs, like pretty much every sales job, you're not making anything, right. You're just like trying to connect a buyer with a product that you didn't make. Um, but that's a job that can be uh, more lucrative. Like you can make more money doing that. Um, there's jobs like where you don't make something, but if you're like a tour guide outside, you get to be outside. So it's not just like, if you're trying to attract men to the library world, the men who maybe aren't interested in a certain type of like manhood, but might be interested in some of the library things, like there's, uh, they have other choices. Right. Well, and so this is part of though where I'm like, why it would be a good thing. Um, because, for example, if you had those men for whom salary is a super important factor, if you can attract them to libraries and they end up agitating and negotiating for higher salaries in libraries, that could benefit everybody mm-hmm. um, because it pays shit. And, it, you know, sometimes I think part of why it pays shit is because most of the people who get into it, my boss, you know, when I was like, agitating for a raise several years ago was like, well, you didn't get in it for the money. And I was like, that's true, but I'm making taking home less money this year than I was last year. 
And like, I think there's something to be said for. Uh, when a boss says that, right? Like it's, it's also them saying like the, we don't care enough about the service to pay you what it's worth, right? We don't care enough either. Like the, you didn't get in this for this money. You're supposed to be doing like a public service or the love of the job or whatever that is. But it's sort of the, they're not expressing a lot of care for the community either. They're really saying like, well, if you're not willing to work for something, it must be because you don't care. But it's okay that we don't care enough to pay you what you're worth. Yeah, and I guess part of, sometimes I wonder, I don't know. I mm -hmm. just wonder if there were more people in the library sphere, for example, who are willing to say like, uh, listen, pay me this or I walk. And then they left. And like, if we start losing good people that way and other things like that, Whereas I think most people in libraries are sort of dedicated to it for outside of the monetary reasons, but sometimes that's to our detriment. Right. Because it makes us willing to accept conditions that we shouldn't accept. I mean, it sounds kind of like that problem you have of people are in it for, they're in it for like an almost individual fulfillment. Like, not the saying that they're not doing good work for a community, but like, Maybe they're in it for the warm and fuzzies, but that warm and fuzzies are like allows them to be exploited in a certain way. Yeah, right. Because they're like, well, I get the nothing beats the happiness on a child's face after story time. Right. But I'm like, but couldn't we have that and have another $10,000 this year? It's sort of like, like it wouldn't reduce that smile <laughs> yeah that wouldn't make you feel worse about it and it yeah. wouldn't like necessarily you know a, a big myth that people have is like the if you keep pay low or conditions bad then only the people who are dedicated will stay yeah which is not really true like if you keep conditions bad you're not testing for the ability to do the job you're testing for the ability to endure shitty conditions which is not necessarily going to make for the best librarians well and i think that probably has some to do why with we're in the situation we are now because historically this was like a job that women could have that was like acceptable mm -hmm. but also probably in the past most women who were working in a library had husbands who were working right and so they weren't like trying to live on just their income and you know when i say in the past i mean like let's say 1970s and before there was definitely a perception. Someone probably could correct us and say that there were plenty of women who were supporting the household on this tiny income and struggling to get by, but that was the popular perception that justified not paying women. Well, and I would say today, when, you know, most of the people I work with have partners who have jobs. Right. Not all, but most. And so sometimes it's like, well, yeah, somebody else having a job where they can make more or the same money at least can let you work a job that isn't so financially gainful. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all this to say, I don't think it's a good thing when any industry or anything is uh, heavily out of balance any which way, you know, and like whether or not that's balanced the way I think it should like with people I agree with or that I look like or whatever. Or if it's people who I disagree with or whatever. I just think the problems tend to happen when it's super, super out of balance. And so, like, for universities, 
I think it's just more like getting a balance would be good. Um, and I just, I don't know. I think that sometimes when we get in the balance questions, I think this those balance questions often get oversimplified. Yeah. And often, I'll say oversimplified to make a political point. Like mm-hmm. my point about like, most of the time when people say like the universities are too liberal, they pick a handful of, sometimes they pick like certain elite, small private schools. Sure. And that's not representative of most schools. Sometimes they pick like the liberal arts and humanities and they don't talk about the business school. Um, Right. Sometimes they also don't get at the challenges of who actually has power in that plenty of campus universities and colleges will have like fairly like, Maybe they might have fairly liberal or lefty faculty, but fairly conservative administrators who have a disproportionate amount of power and governance. And that's not balance, if that makes, you know, like... Yeah. When the people who have the power, like, you know, you might have a lot of people who might be, like, liberal or lefty teaching classes, but when the people who are controlling who has a job, who doesn't, are a little more conservative-leaning, like, does that give you balance? Or that's sort of, like, trying to... Sometimes it's people don't recognize where the locus of power really or like often is. And they, but they, and sometimes they try to avoid that on purpose. Yeah. I, I just think that it's, you know, that's the thing though. If you have a balanced staff, then you should also expect to have a balanced administration. And if you have an unbalanced staff, then someone's probably going to try and balance that out by having a different representation in the administration and that doesn't necessarily work right but i think this is what happens is when you get out of balance then people try to correct it in ways and sometimes the corrections cause more harm and the other thing is i just when we're looking back at this question and these other things i think what i'm trying to say is that like when you have people talk to you about safe spaces Mm -hmm. i think it would be helpful if there were more faculty who were uh, more conservative if they were also like you know I work at the same college and I've never experienced a safe space like I I think it's a stupid concept but I gotta be honest I've never seen it right I think that helps I think that speaks to, to them and makes people who are more conservative feel like oh okay that is fine I think there's that's all that's honestly I think a large problem of media more generally because I like I do encounter people who write those things like mm-hmm. who are like I'm a conservative a lot of the stuff that like is this sort of like safe space is bad that kind of thing like they started to recognize over time like one person who was a conservative wrote like one of the things he's recognized was a bad idea was kind of the normless space where everything goes sure um which he was like some people I know who are conservatives are kind of advocating for that, but that actually just doesn't work. You know, like I can't teach my classes that way. Right. Um, and it's sort of, that's where he had said, like, I came around on this idea of safe spaces. Like it was something that I was told one thing by conservative media. I encountered it. I'm like, Oh wait, this is not really right. But the problem I think we face in a lot of media outlets is that some folks have managed to make a career out of, the universities, the lefty universities out of control oh, by sure. not doing, well, not really doing the work, right? Like they don't work there. They don't, they talk to people who are vaguely associated, but not like directly connected. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think part of it is that there's a need for public accountability 
you know, like accountability to the public, but that media that gets in between is not bothering to do they're not what they're not doing is they're not respecting the story. Mm-hmm. They're fundamentally like they have the point that they know gets clicks. Yeah. And they don't want to deal with the actual problem because that would take for some opinion columnists, like that would take actual effort. They'd have to like go talk to a person and not just read their Twitter feed and Yeah. No, I mean I think that that's a huge problem and that's something I don't like about journalism very much. And like I think that goes both ways, right? Because you have the the people who are like complaining about like, oh, they're giving college students Play-Doh because they were emotionally damaged by uh, seeing a white person or some, you know, some crazy shit like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have those other stories where you're like, uh, someone spray painted a swastika on the side of a shed on campus. Like that happened somewhere around here a couple years ago. And I was like, you know, I mean, I guess it's possible that this is like a Ku Klux Klan thing, but I think it's equally possible that this is like some fucking moron who's like 17 and was just like, what's the worst thing I can spray? There's a strong (laughs) chance that that's like an edgy teenager thing. Exactly. I mean, it seems like a very edgy teenager activity, you know, and I was like, I mean, yeah, if you were like, what's the thing I can do that's going to get people the most upset? And then everyone is like, we need to have like a summit on campus about, you know, racism on campus and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I think this is exactly what that person was trying to do. I don't think this person was trying to make a point about something. I think they were trying to cause chaos. I think the edgy teenager probably was not thinking that far ahead. So I'm going to disagree with you there. I think they didn't have a, I don't think they had much of a plan outside of like, lull and then they didn't think about it beyond that well and i don't necessarily mean like on the level that it amounted Mm -hmm. to i just mean like their thing was like i'm gonna spray paint a thing and people are gonna see it and be unhappy and you know flip out right uh minimum effort on my part for maximum result (laughs) and i was like they got exactly what they wanted Mm -hmm. and so i'm like you know the other side does it too like when they're talking about that and i'm like is nobody who's reporting on this story going to say it's entirely possible that it was someone who does not go to this school, who's 17, who found spray paint in the garage and was like, check this shit out, did a swastika, probably did one of the arms backwards because I don't even know what they're doing. And then like ran away giggling, pushing each other in the bushes. It's the kind <laughs> like, of thing where I think like it's, it's part of hardware that if you don't have much context for something or don't bother to like either get context or write the context up like it's one thing if the swastika is appearing when there's like a bunch of other swastikas appearing at different parts of campus like sure. that's when you start to say even if it is the edgy teenager like you know it's a difference of like one event doesn't make a pattern and sometimes people might want to say like that's important um, which is also the part on both sides to some degree of those issues. Like they want to build patterns where there aren't maybe patterns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think talking about that is like, you know, what is the racial climate on camp- campus or something? And it's like somebody painted a swastika and you're like, well, I guess where I get frustrated in a current moment is that there can be a both sides do bad things 
one side is disproportionately using the legislature to do bad things. And that's probably where I'm like, well, one side's reaction is disproportionate in a more damaging way. I mean, I don't know how much I can get into that. I guess like, it's sort of like, I guess what I'm coming to is I do recognize problems on both sides, but I don't necessarily recognize that both sides are equally and proportionally bad in this moment. Well, I think for me, I feel like the kind of conservatism that I understand is what I call Wyoming conservatism, mm -hmm. which they seem to be of generally the conservative uh, idea of like, government, leave me alone. I will do my own thing. Like, I don't want anything. Like, I'll stay out of my shit. Right. And, like, to the point where, like, they don't have state income tax. You know? And I'm like, well, they're kind of walking the walk here. Sure. I, I can't argue with that. And so, I guess the, the kind of conservatism I don't agree with as much is when it's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and, like, basically tattle to mom and, like, make her stop this thing from happening. And... I. I don't get into that, but I don't know. I <laughs> So really what we've come down to is uh, mind your business. Don't tell the dad, you know, don't find bio dad. Mind well, your business. Don't tell your business. If you're going to be conservative and you're like government, stay off of this, stay off of that. Just be consistent. Right. Just like, okay, government stays out of everything. So yeah, you should be able to get an abortion then because it shouldn't be up to the government, mm -hmm. right? It should be up to you. And like, if you don't want, if you don't want to pay state income tax, great. Then, but don't also be like trying to decide that. Or like, if you want to keep your guns, if you want the government to stay away from gun ownership, okay. But then, you know, stay out of, they have to stay out of other shit too. Like they, if you want to own a gun, then surely some, you know, old hippie can teach whatever fucking trans black poet in his class that he wants to like right. <laughs> one of those things is you know way less potentially damaging than the other one of those things takes a lot more there's a lot more intermediate steps to the downfall of the republic yeah yeah so i i kind of think like that's that's the biggest problem i have with it is the hypocrisy part mm -hmm. of like oh yeah this and that but then it is the challenging thing when dealing with like free speech is that many people are inconsistent um, and some people are just outright hypocrites. Well, most people. Yeah. I think that there was this guy who was the head of the ACLU who said it the best. He was like, uh, hate speech is speech that I hate. Right. And that's how everyone would define it is, you know, speech that I don't like shouldn't be free and everything else should everything I like should be free. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's really just about what you like or dislike. And that's um, unfortunate that that's how people view it. It's fine for your personal taste and your personal associations. It might not be a good way of setting policy. Of like, if you say hate speech is speech that I hate, if you're like, well, right. I don't want to deal with it or I don't want to hang out with people who deal with that. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah, it's, it's total. Well, yeah. And I don't, I don't have any problem with that. If you're like, listen, this guy tells a lot of jokes where the punchline seems to be a, a Polak joke, it's a, and I'm not into that. Like, all right. It's a Samoan. Yeah, and you're like, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to hang out with that guy. Right. I'm not going to be like, you have to because of free speech. Like, that's 
crazy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm not going to advocate for somebody's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, that doesn't matter to me. I just, that's silly and that's not really mm-hmm. what, what I'd argue about. But doing the wrap up so that way we can wrap up. Yeah. Uh, mind your business. Don't visit your bio, dad. Yeah, just leave him alone. Like, just don't leave him alone because, like, you know, it's the odds it's going to come out good, pretty low, not great. Um, Isn't life hard enough to, like, without discovering at age 65 that you had a child? Yeah. Isn't it bad enough? Wouldn't uh, you just rather go to the grave? Just be like, I didn't do this, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm you know, um, on the complete contrast, like, go ahead and write about what you want to write about. Yes, write about anything. Right, write about anything because it's not going to wreck anybody's life. Write a fictional tale about meeting your biological dad. That Do that. That's yeah. fine, right? Or they, write the fictional tale about your decision whether or not to meet your biological dad and then maybe don't go through with it. And you know what? If you write the fictional story, tell the lie that tells the truth truer. In uh, the fictional story, have a tale. Mm-hmm. And you want to find out if your dad had a fucking tale. Sure. Because <laughs> that would make sense. <laughs> As for should you teach the poetry, uh, probably not. No, Maybe. but not for the reasons that you're thinking. No, <laughs> right. Just you know what, man. Just like take it easy on it for a couple years, and we'll all blow over. And then you can go right back in. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine. Um. All right, we did it. Done. Yay! Oh, we have three percent battery, so we should have <laughs> just enough. Just enough to get through the theme song. Do you have anything that you need to say or plug or something? I don't have anything I need to say or plug. I feel like that's how podcasts end. Um, so I ask people, do you have anything to plug? But they're just, everyone who's on this show is just like a regular ass person. It's because everyone else has a podcast or they're like, <laughs> yeah. follow me on Twitter for nothing. That's true. I guess if I had, if I was on a podcast, right. I'm like, oh yeah, uh, do this. Mm-hmm. But most people, this is like, that's maybe one of the advantages of this show. Regular ass people. That's that you're right. Not going to find on other shows that don't have their own shows. Have you ever been on another podcast? I had a podcast briefly, but it didn't. It didn't. Like I had it up for like a couple weeks, and then I got rid of it. Does it? Oh, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it exists in like files on my computer. But oh my god, what was the, it about? It was. I interviewed you for it. It's supposed to be that school project oh, one. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got, you know, and I was like, I got through a few episodes. I liked what I had. And then I was like, yeah, but I think I'm done with it. (laughs) You quickly were like, you know, I've done what I needed to do in this form. Right. (laughs) Well, glad I could be part of it. (laughs) All right. See you next time.